By the way, my name is Mike Mariner, and uh, I want to be presumptuous this morning and just say, uh, you're going to be blessed uh, by the sermon today, because this is an encouraging word from the Lord, and it was worth uh, spending uh, the July 4th weekend Sunday morning here. Uh, I'm going to be presumptuous because I have been blessed from the word of God, and I have a chance to just share that with you. And we're going to acknowledge right now God's presence, ask his uh, blessing upon uh, the preaching of his word. And we're going to just take a moment, all of us, to say, God, we choose to open our hearts to you, and you may speak to me as, as I need it. Some of us need comforting. Some of us need challenging. And God knows exactly what's going on in your life, and he will encourage you the way you need to be encouraged. So let's pray. God, we acknowledge your presence. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You are here. And so, God, we just humble ourselves right now in your mighty presence. Uh, we are amazed at the fact that you love us and that you have good uh, toward us. Your desire is good. And, and right now we get to open up your word, and it is a word of encouragement. And Father, you know exactly what's going on in each of our lives, and so we, uh, we just invite you to come and speak to us. Challenge us if we need challenged. Encourage us if we need courage. Comfort us, Lord. Uh, we just need to hear from you. We need to encounter you afresh today. And thank you for the gathering of your people. What an encouragement. And for the opportunity to minister to each other and to you in, in songs of praise. And now the preaching of your word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm super excited uh, about the message today because it's the very first uh, sermon of the Apostle Paul recorded in the Scripture. Uh, and Apostle Paul, he's pretty awesome. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. And so we get to hear his very first sermon. And one thing I love about the book of Acts, we're in a series on the book of Acts, and Acts uh, is a, uh, a shortened version of the, the, the original title, The Acts of the Apostles. And the book of Acts is basically sort of the history of the early church's expansion, its missionary activity. And the book of Acts takes time to record some sermons in their entirety. And so we have a sermon uh, from the Apostle Peter and Paul and Stephen. And the thing that's awesome about that is we don't need to wonder what was the message that the early Christians proclaimed. People will try to confuse us about that. Uh, we don't have to wonder what it is that they were going around proclaiming and dying for because it's recorded for us in the Scriptures. And so that's one reason I love today. Uh, let me just place... Where are we in the story of Acts? Let's place ourselves. So we're in chapter 13. We're about halfway through the book. And chapter 13 begins with this. Now there were in the church at Antioch. So, uh, map of the world, locate yourself. You're in Syria, in Antioch, Syria, and the church there. Uh, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now Saul later is called Paul. He's the Apostle Paul. While they were worshiping the, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and set them off. Can't miss the fact that God is directing the evangelism. God is... Uh, is the missionary director, and he says, Paul and Barnabas, I'm gonna, I want them to uh, head out from you and go off and preach uh, to others. 
Maybe the Lord looked at that list and said, eh, there's just too much cool leadership here. We need to spread it out a little bit. They got more than they need. So I've got this cool map here, and it tells us uh, what happened next. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, there on the coast. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, say they, uh, there's a story there at Paphos, and then they get on a boat, and they head over to what is modern-day Turkey, and they land at Perga. And now we're in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is John Mark. Later, Paul and Barnabas have a row over John Mark because Paul felt like uh, John's returning to Jerusalem was abandoning the mission. Later, Paul said, hey, let's take John on missionary journey too. And, and uh, Paul said, no, you know, the guy doesn't have enough stick to I don't want him. So Paul and Barnabas actually parted ways. Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took with him Silas. So, verse 14. But they, Paul and Barnabas, went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So they went from Antioch to Antioch, but they're two different Antiochs. Uh, one is in Syria, and the other is modern-day Turkey. I have a picture here of uh, uh, a temple in what was Antioch, the ruins of a temple of, in what was Antioch of um, Pamphylia, or, or Pisidia. It's called Pisidian Antioch. And that's where our, state, our story takes place uh, today, Pisidian Antioch, and, and this is on Paul's first missionary journey. So he's kind of a new, a new missionary. So we pick up, verse 14. So they, they went on from Perga, came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Synagogue was essentially church for the Jews. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. You know, I, I, I'm thinking, how were these Jews in Pisidian Antioch feeling? And I think that they were desperate for a word of encouragement, like we are. Uh, their situation wasn't all that much different than ours. Historians tell us that there might have been up to 2,000 Jews in Pisidian Antioch, but they were by no means the dominant culture. The dominant culture uh, was pagan, idolatrous. And so the Jewish people would meet together weekly in the synagogue to read God's word, to encourage each other in their faith, to exhort each other to follow uh, the values and the, the, the uh, teachings of Moses. And they, but they, and they were desperate for encouragement because as soon as they left the synagogue and went out into the world, they were different. They were countercultural. They were not encouraged uh, to follow God. They were encouraged to follow all kinds of other gods and behave in, in, very, in ways that were very counter to the teachings of God. And so Paul and Barnabas shown up and they, I don't think it's any mistake or uh, that they're asking, do you have a word of encouragement for us? If you do, please say it. We need it. And you know, I was thinking, uh, we need a word of encouragement. I don't know about you, but a couple weeks ago when uh, the Supreme Court 
made its ruling on same-sex marriage, I was uh, disheartened. It was troubling. I wasn't despairing. I know God hasn't gone anywhere. But I know that as a result of that ruling, uh, wickedness will proliferate in our society and people will be hurt. That's troubling. That's disheartening. It's disheartening when, when the top uh, court in the land says this is acceptable for society. This kind of behavior is acceptable. We're going to give it a label and, and benefits that allow it to proliferate in society. Uh, last Sunday, I just wasn't ready yet to talk about it. My heart was troubled. But you know what? There is an encouraging word. The Lord's gotten me to a place where I can give us an encouraging word, uh, even on this uh, ruling of same-sex marriage. Um, We have, and Sabrina will uh, put out on these tables, I've got a a statement uh, put out by the National Association of Evangelicals that we as a church um, agree with, and you... After the service, I encourage you to read it. But here's the way, uh, here's the encouraging word. Number one, we're going to rejoice in God. God has not gone anywhere, and here, and God still has a good plan called marriage. A good plan uh, that he wants us to enter into, he wants us to celebrate and enjoy. In fact, yesterday, Mark and Hallie, Mary, uh, Mark and Hallie Fondren got married. Uh, they're part of us. The week before that, I had the privilege of marrying Brandon and Lindsay O'Brikus, uh, a man and a woman entering into marriage that God had ordained. And, and uh, we, we want to celebrate that. We want to bless it. It, it. God's good plan still stands, and the ruling of the Supreme Court doesn't jeopardize that at all for us, right? So we can rejoice in God. We don't rejoice in the decision that was made, but we rejoice in God. Number two, we're going to remain faithful. Uh, God's plan for marriage is not ambiguous. In fact, I want to uh, turn your attention to what Jesus said about marriage uh, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Just in case anybody is getting confused about, hmm, what is God's plan for marriage? Here's Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the biblical uh, God's ordained plan for marriage is uh, a man and a woman who enter into a lifelong, sexually exclusive relationship. They love each other for a lifetime through through, uh, thick and thin, sickness, health, till death do us part. That's God's plan. And and so uh, we don't need to be confused uh, and send confusing signals. We need to just remain faithful to God's good plan. So here at Clearwater Church, we will not be marrying any same-sex, performing any same-sex uh, weddings. Nor do I, I, I don't encourage you to consider anything other than the opposite, uh, the opposite gender. And then, uh, so we're going to rejoice in God. We're going to remain faithful to God's plan for marriage. And, and number three, we're going to continue to reach out with the gospel. Uh, we don't need to go into hiding. 
Now, we know that as a result of this ruling, we as Christians are going to get more uh, heat on us to um, capitulate, and, and there will be more pressure to, to uh, conform to, to, to our uh, ungodly culture, sometimes ungodly culture. And, and we know we're going to have all those in, in increasing awkward conversations and pressure. We know that. But, we're, but we've still got the gospel. And we're going to still reach out with the gospel. And we're not going to go into hiding. Uh, we still possess the very, very good news that the world needs to hear. And that is God loves us enough that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who willingly went to the cross where he bled and died to pay the penalty for our sins. And that through him, we can be changed. He can, he can transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. He can even change our sexual preferences, orientation, whatever we want to call it. We can be, come like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And that is the good news. And the world absolutely needs to hear it. And the church is not meant to, uh, to be uh, in hiding. The church is meant to be going out, which is part of our story today. God sends Paul and Barnabas out there. And so we as a church are going to continue to go out with the gospel. The gospel that applies as much to a, a heterosexual who's caught up in, in perversion, sexual perversion, as it does to a homosexual, as it does to an alcoholic, as it does to somebody who is, walks around angry, as it does to a liar and a cheater and whatever our sins are, right? And so I'm encouraged. God hasn't gone anywhere. He's still got a great plan, and we still possess the gospel that the world needs, and we're just going to stay, stay on task. Stay focused. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, I just imagine Paul and uh, Barnabas thinking, do we have a word of encouragement? That's absolutely. Do we ever? We have the most encouraging word, and his name is Jesus. So I, I, I don't, I can see Paul stand. It says here, so Paul stood up. I have a feeling he stood up with lots of enthusiasm. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul's encouraging word has uh, four aspects. And the first one is this. And it's in your bulletin if you like to write in the, put, you know, take notes. Paul says, look, God has fulfilled the promise he made long ago. He has sent a Savior and his name is Jesus. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been praying and waiting for the Savior that God had promised. And Paul said, he's come. The waiting time is over. 
Like Mark and Halle yesterday, they've been waiting uh, to be married. And yesterday it was over. You may now kiss the bride. And from now on, they're to enjoy uh, the relationship of marriage. And that's what Paul's saying. The Savior has come. His name is Jesus. The waiting period is over. Now you get to enjoy the salvation that God has provided. God has fulfilled his promise. The time is now to be saved. What a wonderful, encouraging message. Can you imagine the, uh, what? How the, the Jewish people in the synagogue, how they just must have sat up, eyes gotten wide. What, he's fulfilled that promise we've all been waiting for, longing for? This is unbelievable. He goes on, verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. So in this synagogue you have Jews and you have uh, Gentiles who fear God. God-fearing Gentiles. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Here's what I think Paul's saying. A second aspect of his encouraging word, he says, you know what? Men may reject this Savior, but none can stop him because God is for him. The, the leaders of Jerusalem didn't understand who he was. They had him killed. But God just brought him right back to life. You cannot stop this Savior, at which means those who put their hope in this Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. This salvation that God has provided us, it's totally secure. He's the resurrected Savior. Not even death can stop him. The salvation that God uh, the Savior that God promised has come, and none can stop him, for God is for him. In fact, the Bible tells us uh, there is no other name given among men whereby we much must be saved. God has no plan B. There is one Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. And though humans rejected him and killed him, God just brought him right back to death, uh, brought back to life, and said, "Nope, he's the Savior." He can save you. You just feel that, can you imagine the people in the synagogue? What? This is unbelievable. This is encouraging. Third aspect of Paul's encouraging word, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Oh, this just keeps getting better. Forgiveness of sins. He's talking to uh, Jewish people who are very aware of their sin. One of the reasons God gave the Jews the law is precisely to confront them with their sinfulness. As, as the Jewish people tried so hard to obey the law of God, they just kept falling and failing, right? And they just had, they, they walked around with a very uh, clear understanding, I am sinful, and, and, a, and a, an amount, a certain amount of dread and despair about what does that mean with my relationship with God. God who is holy, in him, God is light in him, there is no darkness at all, and that there's darkness in me. Ah, 
What am I going to do? And Paul says, through this Savior, we can have forgiveness of sins. Now listen, we have all sinned. I don't know what your sins are. You don't know what my sins are. But Jesus is not going to be attractive to you if you're like an ostrich with your head buried in the sand, not admitting that you're sinful. I had a friend in college. He became increasingly convinced of the arguments of God's existence and Jesus' divinity. But, but finally, he, he asked me one day, Mike, do I have to admit I'm a sinner to be a Christian? I said, yes, you do. He said, I can't do that. He came from a, a, a whole culture and a self-understanding in which he did not view himself as having ever sinned. Well, you cannot embrace the Savior if you aren't willing to admit you are a sinner. Because what has he come to save you from? He has not come to save you from poverty. He has not come to save us from uh, not being happy enough. He's come to save us from our sins so that we can have fellowship with a holy God. Well, for the Jewish people, uh, they, weren't, they weren't thinking of themselves as sinful, uh, sinless. Uh, they knew that they were sinful. And this uh, encouraging news that through the Savior, Jesus, they can have forgiveness of sins. This is unbelievable. This is so exciting. Now, I just took a moment. It didn't take me very long. I took a moment. I thought, I'm going to jot down some sins that people throughout history have found forgiveness for. So these are sins that uh, Christian people have done from which God has, for, for which God has forgiven them in Jesus. Using foul language, cheating on taxes, lying to uh, a loved one, stealing from your parents, embezzling from a business, falsely accusing someone, squandering your talents and resources, wishing somebody was dead, paying for sex, treating someone poorly because of the color of their skin, selling someone into slavery, cheating a family member out of their inheritance, having sex outside of marriage, rape, having an abortion, abusing a spouse, envying, murder, harming a child, cursing God. You name it, somebody throughout history has done it and found forgiveness for it through the Savior, Jesus Christ. I list those things just to get our mind going. I don't know what your sins are. You don't know what my sins are. But you know what? Jesus, through Jesus, you can find forgiveness for that. What is it that, that haunts you at night when you're alone? What have you done? What have you thought? What have you said that, that has harmed somebody? You know it's wrong, and you, you're having a hard time finding forgiveness for that. Here's the encouraging word. Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Fourth aspect of this encouraging word, verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That word freed there is the word justified. Everyone who believes is justified. And another, way to, uh, another definition of justified is declared righteous. They're declared righteous from everything from which you could not be declared righteous by the law of Moses. Here's what Paul's saying. Uh, 
In Jesus Christ, your relationship with God can change. It can change from a performance-based relationship with God to a grace-based relationship with God. And this is tremendous. The Jewish people, when were they right with God? They were right with God when they obeyed the law. It was a performance-based relationship. And that's stressful because we know that we cannot perfectly obey. Not only are there sins of commission, which is bad things I do, but things, good things that I don't do. And if we have you know, a, a proper view on, on holiness, we'll realize we're failing all the time. And that can totally stress you out in terms of your relationship with God. If you believe God will, will love me and God will accept me if I perform, that is stressful. It certainly should be. But when you understand what Paul is saying, uh, listen, in Jesus Christ, uh, God all of a sudden declares you righteous. When he looks at me, he, views, he sees Jesus because he's chosen to apply Christ's righteousness to my account. So when he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ, period, no matter what my performance is looking like that day. When I came to understand this at the age of 17, it, it revolutionized my experience of God. Up until then, I had days when I felt freed, free in my relationship with God because I had lived a pretty good day. I walked some little ladies across the street. I read my Bible and prayed, and I hadn't yelled at my parents. And so I'm like, okay, I, you know, God loves me or accepts me. I knew God loved me, uh, but God was, you know, I had the favor of the Lord, and so I felt free to talk to him. And then there were the days when I was ashamed, and I knew my performance was not what it should be, and I, I wasn't sure how God felt about me. And it interrupted our, uh, my relationship with him. But when I came to understand that my relationship with God was grace-based, undeserved, unmerited favor, it's constant. When God looks at me, no matter what I've done that day, he sees Jesus Christ. Huh, all of a sudden, it stabilized my relationship. I could come to God at any moment, and I would say, God, I come before you boldly. You actually say, I can come boldly before you, God, not because I'm good enough, but because Christ is perfect, and I am in Christ. Now listen. Some fear that if you take away the motivation of performance, people won't, Christians won't want to, won't have a motivation to do what's right. I am more motivated to do what is right today than I was back when I thought I had a performance-based relationship with God. I don't, I'm absolutely secure in my relationship with God, but, but I, want to, I want to please him because I'm more excited about him than I ever have been. But I've come to, I've come to believe down deep that God's plan for life is better than my own plan. I've come to believe that God, God desires good for me. And so when, I'm not, when I am consciously not on his path, I realize all I'm doing is cheating myself. And the older I get and the more I walk with Christ, the more I taste and see that the Lord is good, the more I believe that deep down. And the, and, and the less often I kind of stray. Not because I fear, oh, God won't love me, God won't be happy with me. I don't want to miss out on what he has that is good for me. Well, the service concludes. Paul's message is done. He, he, he ends with a, hey, don't miss out. <laughs> don't miss out. 
Service concludes. Verse 42, I love this. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. By the way, why does nobody do that to me? When I'm leaving, I have yet to have anybody get down on the knees and go, Mike, please come back next week. I've got to hear it again. So I'm still, I got to grow in this, but isn't that awesome? The people begged that these things might be told to them again next Sabbath. They heard it for what it was, an encouraging word. Oh, please come back. We, gotta, we want to hear more of this. And they did come back next week. In fact, the scripture tells virtually the entire town of Pisidian Antioch came out to hear this. Never before had, had the synagogue been so full. And unfortunately, the Jewish leaders are filled with jealousy. Hey, nobody's come to hear us uh, speak in these kind of numbers. And so what did they do? They, out of their jealous hearts, they opposed the preaching of the gospel. And they tried to turn people away from the good news. And then Paul, in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. He's talking to the Jews and their leaders. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Boy, uh, this, is, this is a verse that I think you need to chew on. Go home and ponder. What in the world does Paul mean by this? Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Here's what I think it's, Paul is hitting on. A very important truth. Person who hears the good news that God loves me enough to, to have come down and died for me so that my sins can be forgiven, I can live with him forever. person who hears that and rejects it, Paul says, you reject it because you don't properly value yourself. The person who thinks, I'm an enlightened one because I believe in evolution, I'm a scientifically enlightened person, and what I believe is that I'm a product of random evolutionary chance. And... Uh, and, and I'm going to die, and this is all I get. And you, and you think you're scientifically enlightened, but what, what God says is you completely devalue yourself. There is nothing more, no, no more human, uh, humanly val, human valuing message than the gospel that says God so values you that he said, I consider it, uh, I consider it worthwhile to come and die for you so that you can live with me and not be lost. And so for a person to reject the gospel, they're devaluing themselves. And so my challenge, if you're here and, and, you're, and you have not yet received the Savior, will you value yourself enough this morning that you will receive the one that God has sent so that you might live forever? Live freed from your, forgiven of your sins, and uh, freed to live in a grace-based relationship with God for eternity. That's how much he values you. And that's what the cross is all about. You can't look at the cross and not see God's, uh, God's uh, value of you. His, the, price that he, uh, uh, the price tag he puts on you. Please, do not devalue yourself. And, and reject the gospel, but respond. So let's, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, just closing your eyes, bowing your head, um, just so no distractions and you can do business with God.
if you are in Christ, if you have received the Savior, maybe today you need to just uh, receive the truth that your sins are forgiven, even that one that has just been plaguing you. God wants you, uh, if he could look you in the eyes this morning, God would say, you are, are, are forgiven from that. I have taken that sin as far away as the east is from the west. It is remembered no more. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And that promise, if you're a Christian, that promise is for you. And faith in God says sometimes we have to just say, I receive even though I don't uh, see how that can be possible or feel it. I receive it as truth and I'll live in light of it. Maybe you're a Christian here today and you, what you need to do is be, and the Holy Spirit wants to shake you out of your performance-based relationship with God and replace it with a grace-based relationship with God. And you need, like I did, to be set free from the false belief that your right standing before the Lord depends upon how well you do that day. And instead, you need to understand, you stand 24-7, 365 days a year between now and the time you die, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, always welcome in the very presence of God. And if you're hearing the gospel and considering whether to respond to it or not for the very first time, please understand that God values you enough to have sent a Savior to die for you. He wants you to live forever with him in heaven. Will you respond to Jesus today? God, we love your word. It's a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Thank you for sending a Savior. We receive him. In Jesus' name, amen.